This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. One of the things that we've had to learn the hard way on the right side of the political spectrum, conservatives in the last few months, is that control of institutions really matters. It isn't just something that you can leave to chance because the left views this as, as a vocation into itself, right? I mean, this is something that they do as a matter of strategy. They want to be, uh, they want to be in charge of things. They want to be in charge of the schools, of Hollywood, of the media. They want to make the decisions about who gets into elite educational institutions. They want to be the ones who hold the door, who are the gatekeepers, and then they can mold society in their image. And we're just beginning to see now among conservatives, among Republicans, a willingness to finally push back against this in a way that matters, perhaps because we're defending on our own five yard line at this point on these cultural issues, on schools, on so many things. But it has finally crossed over. We've finally seen that if we allow this to continue, politics is, in fact, downstream from culture. And if they control the culture and the institutions of culture, we will be in a place we cannot win because the country will have decided to move past what we believe, move past what we think. And, you know, one area where there's actually a lot of control that they're always instituting over us is on the Internet, which is the primary means of communication. It's how a lot of us not only do our jobs now, but also talk to everybody, buy things. But they watch everything you do. You know that, right? But you can anonymize your connection so that you can surf the Internet freely without wondering who will get a hold of your search history or your viewing habits or what they'll do with that information. Do you want these private companies that are now working closer and closer with the government to have the data on everything you type, every website you go to? That's why I use ExpressVPN. These companies can't see my IP address at all. My identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. and My data is encrypted for maximum protection. Beside hiding all my internet activity, what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. I just download the app on my phone, you just set it up, and then you run it, and you're protected. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies. This is a must, all right? This is something that you have to have. You think of it like insurance for your home, okay? You got to do this. You must protect your privacy online with ExpressVPN. Defend your rights. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. You'll get three extra months of protection. That's right. Three free months when you go to expressvpn.com slash buck. Florida civics curriculum will incorporate foundational concepts with the best materials, and it will expressly exclude unsanctioned narratives like critical race theory and other unsubstantiated theories. Let me be clear, there's no room uh, in our classrooms for things like critical race theory. Teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other is not worth one red cent of taxpayer money. So we will invest in actual, solid, true curriculum, and we will be a leader in the development and and implementation of a world-class civics education. A world-class civics education. This is what Florida is 
on a pathway to now, thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis in public schools. That's right. People should learn the truth about how government works, how their country works. And we shouldn't allow for this brain rot of critical race theory to continue to spread all across campuses, all across not just high school, but now uh, grade school, grammar school curriculum. Ron DeSantis is increasingly feeling like the leader of the Republican Party. I know that that Donald Trump still holds the for a lot of people holds the reins of the GOP's future. But Ron DeSantis is showing with his actions. Ron DeSantis is accomplishing with his results so much that at this point you have to figure that he's a likely 2024 presidential candidate. But it's even more than that. He's creating a template for other states to follow, because now with the Democrats in control of the House and a de facto majority in the Senate, what we see, and of course, the White House under Biden, who everyone's realized now really is just a pass through for the left wing agenda. I mean, it's the it's the Obama administration with Biden as a puppet, right? Biden just sort of shuffles around. Yeah, you know, sort of just say some things and then I kind of say things like this. I come down here and I read the speech and I mumble some stuff and then I say some things kind of loud. So you think I'm still awake and then I mumble some more stuff and and I pretend to be a great leader because, you know, I'm Joe Biden. Yeah, people are figuring out what this was all about. It's exactly what I told you it would be. So you're not surprised at all. But we need states to step up and show a better way forward. You'll notice that it's also Florida that has taken the lead in trying to create protections for people from social media companies effectively defrauding them. These companies were built on the back of a promise. The promise was that you'd be able to share information, you'd be able to use their platforms without respect to your politics, that they were platforms for the free exchange of ideas, that they were First Amendment defenders, that they were nonpartisan, nonpolitical. That's an absolute lie and it is shifting our national conversation about every issue on a day-to-day basis and if we don't tackle this we'll lose if we don't change this we cannot win the future it will already be decided for us and this is also why critical race theory in schools we are paying attention to this now because you see that the, the left has has a need for an overarching narrative of hysteria. Uh, the, the left is defined by a widespread psychological defect right now of of overwhelming fear from things that are either a minimal risk or a very limited challenge, very limited threat against them. I mean, the, the big example is white supremacy, which I'll be talking to you more about. As you know, the, the term white supremacy, if you just look uh, for a Google search, of white supremacy use in the media 10 years ago versus now, it's just taken off like a rocket ship. This has become a narrative. And what they've done is just like in the 90s when racism was used as a club to beat people that you didn't agree with uh, politically and on the right generally, but also to keep people on your own side in line, right? If you're a liberal, now leftist is I think the more appropriate term, so I'll use that one in place of, if you are a leftist, and you step out of line, you know, the, they, they sometimes will feed their own to the mob. You know, they'll feed their own to the wolves 
in order to show just how woke they are. This is a mechanism of of control. It's a mechanism of, of achieving power and of control. And critical race theory is an indoctrination. In fact, I wrote my I wrote my college thesis at Amherst uh, in part about Herbert Marcuse and critical race theory and the way that it was used to justify campus speech codes, uh, which have been around for a long time. But the campus speech codes were an early indicator at colleges and universities of where we were heading. We were going to a place. It's where we are now. You say things I don't like. That's basically violence. Speech equals violence. That took decades to create that perception, to create the groundwork so that it would finally take root. And we were warning about it. We're saying, look at how insane they are at Harvard, at Yale, at Michigan State, at Mizzou, at Reed College, at UCLA. I mean, you go all over the country, UT Austin. Look at how crazy some of this stuff on campus is. But because we are conservatives, because we're people that don't sit around constantly terrified about everything all the time, we said, "Okay, they'll grow out of it. I think that was our attitude. They'll grow out of it. They'll recognize that this is foolish. They'll recognize this doesn't make sense. And now we live in a society where we see, oh, no, they didn't grow out of it. And in fact, they run some of the most important. They have seized some of the commanding heights of our culture of politics, of the economy, of corporations, of the the nodes of control. Sure, half the country can be Republican and half the country is by party affiliation, roughly speaking. But if they control the corporations, Hollywood, the news media, uh, not just college campuses now, law schools. I mean, international relations school, I can tell you, because I've actually done some some study at them. Uh, are, are basically like communist enclaves. I mean, they're completely insane. And if you get a master's in international affairs, it means you're effectively, uh, you know, they're creating a stooge to go work for the UN and who thinks that America is really bad. All these other countries do great things for the world. America is really bad. But if they control all these things and then they also control the credentialing institutions, so then it becomes a, well, we're just the smarter people. We're just smarter than you are. No, it's just because you create the reality on these campuses of the people that you want. You decide that you're in a place that you can create a socially engineered future of this country. And that's what they've done. And critical race theory is essential in that. Critical race theory is a major component of this. Um, it's, the, it's the view, if you were to just look up a definition of it, that le- law and legal, this from Britannica.com, law and legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that are used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color. According to critical race theory, racial inequality emerges from the social, economic and legal differences that white people create between races to maintain elite white interests in labor markets and politics, give rise to poverty and criminality in many minority communities and giving rise to the CRT movement officially organized itself in 1989 at the first annual workshop on critical race theory, though its intellectual origins go back much further to the 1960s and 1970s. I mentioned to you that I had studied Herbert Marcuse back when I was in college, which now is about 20, almost 20 years ago. And uh, he is somebody who his ideas, his view 
of a society in which everyone is constantly competing with each other. I mean, he's basically a Marxist and he's a, a cultural or a, a, a social Marxist. Although Marx believed in, in his theories, of course, affecting every aspect, every ta- every facet of society, including family relations, including relations between husband and wife. Marx didn't think there was just some solely economic rationale for everything. Uh, it wasn't just an economic interest. It was all of society. But this belief system, you'll notice that they, they really got it going on campuses officially in the 1990s, which is also when you saw the rise of PC culture. PC culture was the precursor to cancel culture. PC culture led to everything is racist. Racism is the reason for all these problems in society. Even if you don't do something or you yourself are not racist, you are a part of a racist system. Therefore, you are furthering racism by your very existence, unless you are, of course, not white or you are somebody who agrees with all of our doctrine. Oh, and actually, if you're a minority who doesn't agree, they will take away your minorityness. They will say that you don't you don't really count. This is how the left has created a perception that, you know, Justice Thomas, for example, is not really representative in some way of the black community. And they'll say really horrible things to that end. But that's what they'll say. Critical race theory is the wellspring for so much of our social misery and despair and so much of what tears us apart. And it undermines foundational concepts of what this American experiment is all about, that we are individuals alike in uh, equal in dignity and grace and made in the image of God. That is all cast aside with this notion that wherever we are, whoever you are, your individual actions, your decency, your your character, your ethics don't matter. You're part of a collective, a racial collective, and you have to either make amends or demand amends, depending on where you are, and also be relieved of any individual responsibility. Notice that this is all just a way of shifting power dynamics. People aren't responsible for their own life, for their own actions. It's the collective. It's society. And you can either pay uh you know pay obedience to this you can either make amends for this or you can be one of the bad people you can be somebody that is called out you can be somebody who is considered a part of the problem you must be not just non-racist but anti-racist this all comes from critical race theory and this is pulling the country apart it is toxic and i'm very happy to see that there are some states that are finally saying enough is enough what happens when critical race theory goes unrestricted when it actually becomes the doctrine when it's what people are are taught they're made to believe or they're brought to believe what kind of things happen well well it erodes your ability to think critically which is of course the irony of this about anything because everything goes into this framework of a racial determinism you're part of a racial collective wherever you are and that has a pull on you your your worth your decency uh who you are in society is largely determined by whatever critical race theory says. So are you a good person? Are you racist? Not racist? Doesn't matter. You have to be an anti-racist, which means doing what they say. And it means seeing white supremacy everywhere, for example. Everything has some white supremacist angle. It means believing the 1619 Project is the true history of America, for example. It means thinking that America is an irredeemably racist and awful place. and, And it creates... 
this this vortex of bad thinking and resentment and divisiveness, which Marxists love because divisiveness, separation of society, especially what is what is generally a, a healthy and prosperous and free society like our own. When you pull people apart, when you create balkanization, you can start to establish control over groups and then you put enough groups together and you have a collective and then you can seize power, which is the point of all of this. But how much can critical race theory uh, change one's thinking? How much can this cultural Marxist approach change one's thinking? They have to get to a point, you see, where objective reality doesn't count anymore. They have to get to a point where you can't even sharing certain facts, saying certain data is de facto racist. What's an example of this? Okay, in New York City, we will often see here a news report where there will be, you know, a a male, 24, 5 foot 10, wearing a hooded sweatshirt. Be on the lookout because just tried to uh, rob someone or just tried to just tried to rape someone in an alleyway or just, you know, shot at somebody. And you'll say, well, hold on a second. Why? I think we need a better description. Can't we have a more of a description if we're supposed to help the police find? No, because depending on the race of the suspect, that itself, the facts of the case could be considered racist, could be construed as racist. This happens all the time. The show cops canceled because they felt there were there was too high of a percentage of minorities involved in arrest situations, even though people's faces are blurred, their identities are protected. Doesn't matter. Just becomes racist. So some aspects of objective reality are therefore racist. Some things that are just true or factual cannot share, cannot say, you know, if if you were to point out, I mean, even there, there are so many aspects you could see all throughout society. If you point out that Asian Americans will be talking more, obviously, about this issue, but uh, during the show, but Asian Americans are discriminated against in colleges. Why is it that Asian Americans have the highest household income higher than white Americans in a white supremacist society? Why is it that Asian Americans, including those who arrive as refugees from Southeast Asia, those who arrive penniless uh, from from East Asia or from or, or from South Asia, do very well in America, are prosperous, quickly find themselves in the middle, even the upper middle class. And, and what's different about the Asian experience in America in that regard than other minority groups that continue to struggle? You better only say the allowable narrative or else you're destroyed. You'll be ruined. And that's the way critical race theory works. Um, that, you know, they're, they're, and, and the only allowable narrative is that white supremacy is the reason for all of this. Just so you understand, that's where this is. And when up is down and down is up and when we can't have agreement upon fundamental facts, then it's just a contest of power. Senator Kennedy yesterday on, uh, on Capitol Hill during a Senate hearing asked an LGBT, LGBTQ activist, Alfonso David, how many biological genders are there? A very straightforward question. This is what he said. Mr. David, let me ask you a question. How, how, many, how many sexes do you think there are? How many sexes? Mm-hmm. How many well, there's genders? a difference between sex and gender identity, if that's what you're getting. No, at. I'm asking biological sexes. How many do you think there are? Well, I would defer to the medical practitioners, but I think there's been studies showing that if you're talking about sex, Sex is defined by many different characteristics and cooling chromosomes. Are there more than are there are there more than two? You could make that argument that they might be. Are more you than making two that argument? Individual. But are well, you making? You, well, I, 
Senator, I can't ignore the fact that they're individuals who are intersex. And so, um, so I'm just trying to it's not I'm running out of time. Are there more than two sexes, in your opinion? It's not limited to two. Okay. There, there are more than two genders. That's where we are now. You heard him. I mean, this, we, we can't get a straight answer on this other than, well, maybe kind of. We don't. That's where we are. This does have a Soviet feel to it. I'm somebody who reads a lot about the former uh, Soviet Union, the totalitarianism of it. Whatever the state told you, you had to believe whatever the party told you or read 1984 or Orwell. And you can see what a fictional totalitarian state was like. But they actually enacted it in the 20th century in some places. That whatever they tell you, you must not only you must not only accept it without challenging, you must celebrate it. It's not enough to bend the knee. You have to proclaim your allegiance to falsehood now, because if they can get you, if the critical race theorists, if the left in America, which is ascendant and which is in control of so much, can get you to agree to falsehood, they can get you to do anything. A terrible mass shooting in the Atlanta area yesterday. People. Still in in shock as we as we see this uh, more information about Robert Aaron Long, 21 years old, killed eight people, six Asian women, a white woman and a white man. Three hour crime spree, three different spas. I'm sorry, this was on on Tuesday. And uh, there's a lot there's a, a lot of video of this that's now circulating. And this is one of those moments where you you have seen somebody who is. Clearly deranged and evil, and it's it's just an awful story. We live in a in a very big country with a lot of uh, a lot of individuals who, unfortunately, when you got three hundred thirty million people, it only takes a handful of evil crazies to create an incident like this, you know, or or, or will continue to create incidents like this over the course of a year. What do we do about it? Well, there's the 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 first reaction, which is that. We want law enforcement to take action and there, there to be swift justice. But then there's the immediate politicization that happens in the media now, too. You see this all over the place. Uh, let's just let's stick with the facts here, shall we? Uh, Robert Aaron Long has said that he was a sex addict and that he was targeting these massage parlors for what was effectively a, a mass assassination um, because they were a temptation to him. That's what he said. Now, I understand that you can't always take the, the word of, of, a, of a clearly deranged and evil person on their motivations, but this does seem to line up with his past. He did go see sex addiction treatment. This guy seems to be something of perhaps an, an incel. Have a, it reminds me of that, the guy who out in California wanted to, wanted to shoot the sorority, the sorority sisters um, and who was a wealthy guy, but would make the, you know, kind of a well-off, spoiled brat guy who would make these videos in his car and said that he was going to go shoot these women. So I believe his name was, uh, well, I'll, I'll look it up. I don't want to say the wrong name. But here's what the Democrats have turned this into right away. I mean, I know, and this is where we're heading, of course. We have a terrible incident, a mass shooting, and now it's, well, what are all the political lanes? And the, the, first, the first one that you see from the news media in an incident like this is that they still find a way to blame this on, oh, that's right, to blame this on Donald Trump. Here is Representative Chu on the murders in Georgia. Play three. Actually, this day was coming because it's been a whole year of ugly 
rhetoric by Donald Trump, who used the word China virus, Wuhan virus, and even Kung flu to describe COVID-19. And we saw a spike recently in places like New York and in California, ugly actions against the elderly and the more vulnerable, including an 84-year-old Thai man who was assaulted and murdered in San Francisco, uh, a 91-year-old man who was assaulted and pushed to the ground in Oakland Chinatown, and in my own city, a man who was beaten with his own cane and then lost part of his finger. So we need to bring attention to this so we can stand together to combat anti-Asian hate crimes. Anti-Asian bigotry is absolutely disgusting. Bigotry of any kind against an individual for their ethnicity, their skin color is is the most uh, disgusting uh, immorality uh, that you can you can come up with. And yet we're going to talk about the politics of this and we're going to say this is Donald Trump's fault. They're going to have to actually deal with the facts. We have to actually look at what really happened here. And in some of the incidents that she names, it is already known that the assailant was, in fact, a black male. Now, I'm not saying because there obviously are people who are uh, fit that profile who are Trump voters. But I have a feeling that there's a pretty high likelihood that some of the individuals uh, who are who are African-American and who attacked, in some cases, killed Asian Americans in some of these incidents. It didn't have a darn thing to do with Donald Trump or the Wuhan virus or anything else. You see, when there's when there's an incident that they can turn to their political favor, they are quick. They are quick to to run with the story before they even let any of the facts get in the way. And that's what they did right away. That's what they did at the first opportunity with this. Um, the first chance they got, this was attacked Donald Trump. I mean, I could sit here and just keep playing clips. It, it's all about it's all about uh, blaming Donald Trump, who's no longer president and who doesn't even really have that much to say in in public these days. Uh, Here's my here's a guy over at MSNBC. Same thing. It's the the mass shooting in Atlanta is Trump's fault. Play four. We've been talking about things that have been existent in America for quite some time, but enhanced over the last four years with the presidential seal of approval given to intolerance, given to fear, given to suspicion, given to anger, given to saying very little about racial strife in this country and the causes of it, never addressing it, of, of lying, of lying about nearly everything you can imagine from the dangers of the virus to the dangers of racial animosity and what it's doing to our country. And the root of it is in the former president four years in his language and in his behavior and we're still living it we're still playing it out and it affects us every day now Donald Trump didn't pull the trigger in Atlanta but Donald Trump certainly was responsible for the anger and the fear and the suspicion that exists in in great degree in this country much more so than ever in the past and uh, he's not to blame for a history of uh, racial strife in this country but he certainly is to be blamed for enhancing it with his inaction and his cowardice in addressing it blamed for this shooting donald trump somehow i mean you, you've you've got to stretch very far to find a way to make this about donald trump this guy had a sex addiction he's clearly deranged he's clearly evil but it's because donald trump really 
I just want to know, in, in five years, in ten years, when there's another mass, there have been mass shootings before this. Unfortunately, there'll be mass shootings after this. Will it still be Donald Trump's fault? I mean, this is this is pathetic. I mean, this isn't a serious argument they're making, are they? Well, no, they they think it is. They they believe this. You know, what's notable is that we're told that there's this uh, this big spike of of attacks on uh, Asian Americans. I mean, you know, Asian Americans predominantly, sometimes Asians, perhaps who are in the country who are, are not citizens, but Asian Americans. And it's concerning and it's wrong. And there there needs to be action taken here. But we don't really hear very much about who's responsible for the attacks. And what the media then does is they fill in this narrative of, oh, it's actually white supremacy. And that's what they've been doing for the last week or so. There's been a huge spike in attacks on on. I should say huge spike. There's been a, a surge in attacks on on Asians, on assaults against Asians in the last year. And most of the attacks that you'll see, most of the news stories are involving individuals who are not white. So it's interesting that white supremacy is behind this. In fact, I, I, I found a graphic uh, of FBI data based on the number of violent incidents uh, against people, white, black, Hispanic and Asian. And then the offender, uh, the percentage of, of offenders. And sure enough, it's, it's unsurprising, I'm sure, for you to hear that most violence occurs within ethnic groups. So white people are responsible for most violence against white people. Black people are responsible for most violence against black people. Hispanic and Asian, the same thing. Um, black assailants, according to this FBI uh, data, are responsible for 20. This was for 2018. So this is not for even this year. In 2018, responsible for 27.5 percent. I'm sorry. Um, yes, 27.5 percent of attacks on Asian Americans. Uh, so there's a a spike in that, uh, or there, there's a substantial number there. The numbers that you see here, here I can give you the the rest of it. You have uh, Asian Americans, 27.5 uh, percent black, 24 percent white for attacks on Asian Americans, Hispanic, 7 percent, Asian, 24 percent, and then other 14 percent. That's the FBI data on this. So the African-American population of the United States is about uh, 13, 14 percent, something like that. The single uh, most likely perpetrator for violent assaults against Asian Americans based on the FBI data from 2018. Now, we don't have this year's data yet. But we're African-Americans. Um, that's just these are just numbers. These are facts. This is what the FBI data compiled says about this. And I think it's interesting because we're told and, and by the way, attacks on Asians are there, there is a, a, a spread. I mean, it's pretty widely distributed. You have Asians attacking Asians, you have whites attacking Asians, you have blacks attacking Asians. You have a very small number of, of Hispanics attacking Asians, but it, it does happen. Um but we're told that this is all about white supremacy and that, and that this is Donald Trump's fault. Well, I mean, what's the data? What's the actual support for that in the numbers? Why would that be the case? Yes, it, it, I guess it's possible that that a number of the the black uh, and there's recent high profile cases. I mean, there was somebody who was just uh, somebody just killed in San Francisco. Uh, Asian-American and what they thought was a hate crime attack. And the attackers were uh, were two black males. And it's possible that they're Trump supporters. I'm not saying it's not. But I, I don't think that if we're looking at the likely motive here, I'm pretty sure that it's 
not actually Donald Trump that has created this mentality. And that's a stretch where you could you could say this about any politician. You start blaming whoever you want for any violent act anywhere because they're being divisive. Someone saying things that are that are divisive can't then be used to claim that a person who attacks another human being who breaks the law isn't fully responsible for their for their actions or isn't, uh, you know, shouldn't be viewed that their motivation shouldn't be viewed based upon the actual circumstances around them. Blame Trump, basically, is what this comes down. Blame Trump. Oh, and blame white supremacy, which we're supposed to believe is everywhere. Our, our whole country is is just soaked in white supremacy now. What a horrible, awful thing. What a terrible way to view the greatest nation that has ever existed on the planet. Uh, but this is what the left believes now, and they'll even take a terrible, tragic incident like this, and they will use it as an opportunity for politics. And that's what they're doing. Uh, but before I begin, I do want to talk about what happened in Georgia, in Atlanta. Uh, it is tragic. Uh, our country, the president and I and all of us, we grieve for the loss. Um, our prayers are extended to the families of, of those who have been killed. And um, it speaks to a larger issue, which is the issue of, of violence in our country and and what we must do to never tolerate it and to always speak out against it uh, the investigation is ongoing we don't yet know we're not yet clear about the motive but i do want to say to our asian american community that we stand with you and understand how this has frightened and shocked and outraged um, all people but knowing the the increasing level of hate crime against our asian american um, brothers and sisters we also want to speak out in um, solidarity with them and, and acknowledge that none of us should ever be silent in the face of any form of hate. It is true. None of us should ever be silent in the face of any form of hate. Hate is, uh, is a terrible thing. It is disgusting. I also think it's very it's worth noting that we have to have these conversations uh, constantly about this from a from a politicized angle. Instead of using this as an opportunity to bring everybody together on our shared common humanity, uh, what you see are people immediately retreating into their their preferred political narratives. Gun control is another one that comes up out of this. We're going to hear and I, I haven't seen it quite yet because the, the they went with the initial it's Trump, it's white supremacy, even though it does seem to be more a a incel slash misogynist, evil, hate, lunatic situation. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know how to specifically diagnose this. But I also think that we, we have all these we're, we're always told to have conversations about this. And and that's it's fine to have a conversation and we should have conversations about violence in society. But I, I get the sense that Democrats are never really serious about uh, trying to address this stuff in a way that's actually going to fix anything. It, it feels like the immediate discussion switches very quickly to attacking political opponents, to attacking political enemies. It's like the Donald Trump situation. They, they go right after Trump. People are shot. It's a terrible situation in Atlanta. Uh, you have an evil individual acting with hateful motives. It's white supremacy and Donald Trump right away. It'll turn into gun control. And you'll be hearing pundits going on TV uh, saying for for quite some time after this that this this goes in a sense, this incident goes in a column alongside uh, you know, other incidents that everybody who is supportive of Donald Trump, for example, or everybody who doesn't agree with critical race theory is responsible for at some level. Right. 
That's what will be said. That's what will actually happen here. And you'll notice that with the the attempted mass assassination of members of Congress in 2018 by a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, it was not, in fact, create it, it did not you know create a whole narrative of the Democrats because they dehumanize Republicans because they say that Republicans don't want they don't want people to have health care. They don't care about people dying. I mean, the guy was actually firing off an AR-15 at members of Congress yelling this, you know, this is for health care. That's what Rand Paul said, who was there. But that doesn't go on, you know, their their moral side of the ledger as in terms of something baggage that the Democrats, the left has to carry. But immediately it gets politicized whenever there's an ugly incident, even if it's not clear that it ties into the, the preferred narrative of the left, it gets put into this uh, situation in this circumstance. The same way that when you hear about about anti-Semitic attacks in New York City, we're told they tried for a while to say the anti-Semitic and it was often Orthodox, Orthodox Jews who were being attacked on the street or being assaulted. Um, and, you know, Orthodox Jews, especially uh, Hasidic Jews, Orthodox Jews, you can tell uh, because of their dress and, and because of their appearance, what their religious beliefs are. And they're being attacked. And we're told initially this is part of the intolerance and the white supremacy from Donald Trump. And then it turns out that, no, it's actually it, it has in New York City been predominantly minorities, uh, black and Latino men who have attacked Orthodox Jewish people in these in these anti-Semitic attacks, these hate crimes. But it's still Trump's fault and it's still white supremacy, which is it's a a fascinating version of events, isn't it? Almost like what happens doesn't really matter to the people in charge based on the facts. The most important thing is how is this leveraged for political purposes? It's Harsanyi time. Our friend David Harsanyi in the mix. Go to nashreview.com for his latest. Mr. Harsanyi, great to have you, sir. Always great to be here. Thank you. So we have a terrible incident that happens in the Atlanta area. Uh, a, a mass shooting. You had, I believe, six uh, of the victims were Asian, two were white. The individual who is in custody, whoever in his Certain. I mean, the guy's confessed. He's, he's the shooter. He's the murderer. Said that he had a sex addiction, and this was some kind of, I don't know, incel rage, you know, murder spree or something. And yet, yesterday you had, you know, the root, uh, a an online, you know, web magazine website, say that this is part of the the white supremacy pandemic. You had a lot of headlines about how this is white supremacy. What is going on here? Well, every you know, when everything when when everything is synthesized through the prism of racism and race, and you're so used to um, relying on that as 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 the only kind of you know view of the world, and you think everyone functions just like you and sees the world just like you, um, you know, you're going to say things like that. And it's also, you know, a very easy way to uh, make appropriate a tragedy for your own political cause. You can bash people that you dislike um, and blame them for it. The world is not that simple. It's almost never that simple. And it's certainly in this case, it's it's complicated and and not complicated really in, 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 in that it is a terrible tragedy, no matter how you slice it, but it's complicated in what who knows why this guy did it? And um, 
I just want to quickly say, even if he had done it for some dumb, ugly political reason, the, the way that they take that and then blame mainstream Republicans or Donald Trump or whatever they're doing, it would still be crazy to say that. And now it's just sort of amped up crazy. And, you know, he, the people you mentioned aren't the only one. I see all these celebrities doing it as well. There's no evidence. They can't even wait for any evidence um, to, to appear before they say stuff like that. It's just insane. It's insanity. Well, I mean, the, by the way, The Root, the magazine, um, actually, the, the, the title or rather the, the line uh, that, that got the, the attention, it wasn't that white supremacy is a pandemic. It is whiteness. The quote was whiteness itself is a pandemic. I mean, I, I really do think that this is now attacking whiteness as a, as a concept has become very fashionable. And and a lot of I mean, you pointed out to, to celebrities and people in news media, you know, it has it's pathetic to watch, but what you'll see are multimillionaire white CNN anchors, for example, who go on air to bash whiteness because it somehow gets them you know, points on the left. It gets them credibility. And it, to me, it just all seems so phony, transparent, idiotic and also really damaging. It's, it's racism. It's real life racism. And I judging people by the color of their skin, which doesn't mean anything, really. I mean, I'm not saying it never means anything in history, but it doesn't really mean define who you are, or what you think or what you do or believe. I know a lot of white people. I disagree with probably most white people I know. And, you know, we disagree on things. We don't, you know, we don't share any kind of um, ideolo ideology because we're white. I mean, we share an ideology because we believe certain things. So, it's dangerous, and it is all the things that people who fought against racism for real in the past fought against, and they embrace it. There's, you know, it's a big joke. I know others have done this, and there's memes about it, but the right, the sort of identitarians of the far right and far left, they sound almost the same. You just have to switch colors sometimes, but they sound the same. It is the most dangerous. Uh, I think it's one of the most dangerous beliefs and ideologies right now in America, philosophies. Do you think that some of the people who um, we're speaking to David Harsanyi of National Review, you can go to nationalreview.com for his latest. David, do you think that that some of the people who are professing this from the news media, from from big perches on TV or, or you know, well-known uh, news or journalistic organizations, do you think they they don't believe it, but they just mouth the preferred slogans of the of the party orthodoxy or do you think that this has really turned into a a moral panic that has convinced you know you know does chris cuomo really think that we're going through a a white supremacy pandemic i mean does you know does rachel maddow really think we're going through a white supremacy pandemic the new york times editorial board or do they just do this because it's popular right now to say this I don't know. Maybe a, a bit of both. But I think increasingly, I believe people believe it. I think you can convince yourself to believe anything, especially when you start dehumanizing people you dislike, which is what what they're doing. And it's also I mean, for someone like Chris Cuomo, let's say, you know, he is not an intellectually curious person. So this is the easiest thing for him to do and to say. And he knows that he'll, he'll have there'll be accolades for saying it, you know, from from people he cares about. Um He's a privileged life and he doesn't just have a privileged life in the sense that he earned some privilege, you know, that he earned it or that he's rich or whatever. He, you know, he inherited it as well. So I'm not sure that he a guy like that should be able to lecture anyone.
but about that sort of thing. But um, I think it is a moral panic as well. You know, I used to not think it, but then I see the comments on like Twitter and elsewhere. And I think people are, are tr so tribal and so mad and so hateful of others that they want to bring everything back to something very identifiable like color about hating, you know, Donald Trump and his supporters and pretending that they're all white supremacists. Um, I don't know. I, I, I've always said that this divisiveness doesn't really exist in the world itself as much as it does on you know social media. But it worries me more and more that this ends in some really ugly and bad way or doesn't end, but becomes something much uglier. Um, and uh, this kind of rhetoric is, is just terrible. Now, I don't blame people. You know, they want to make political arguments. I'm a free speech guy. That's for sure. But I think that people are not really thinking through what they're saying. Now, uh, David, I wanted to switch to the filibuster because I, I think that the, the thing that conservatives and Republicans have had to learn in, in the last few months, if they didn't already know it beforehand, which maybe a lot of people did in their own way, is that double standards, are that, that's not even something the left, they're not, they don't care, they don't feel sheepish about it, they don't pretend they don't have double standards, they just, they, you know, when they can do something, they want to do it, and I think that what we see with the talk of filibuster reform. I mean, this is just laughable, but it's putting the, the smallest of fig leaves over what would be if they do it. And I believe they are going to try to do it. I don't know if they'll be successful, but I believe they will try to do this. Uh, what would be an enormously consequential change to our Congress and how it functions. I mean, they, and they act like it's there's some emergency, some reason it must happen now. We, we can't have obstructionism from the White House, I mean, from the, the Republicans, rather. And that's what the White House is saying. This just seems like the most obvious stuff, David. Can you can you imagine complaining about obstructionism of, uh, less than a week after you signed a $2 trillion bill that was filled with all kinds of goodies for yourself? I mean, it is just, it is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But there are three things about this. One, of course, it's a huge double standard. They were massive hypocrites. They, they used it, they used the filibuster more against Donald Trump in one term than any president has ever had to deal with. And that's fine. They should be able to do that. But they don't care. It's an ends justifies the means argument that they make. The second one, of course, is that if they undo this filibuster, which to me would be the worst thing they could possibly do that I can imagine, because it would allow a, a slim majority to essentially pass gigantic federal direct democracy bills on the rest of the country. It would, I think, create a lot of anger in a lot of red states because there's no consensus, no buy-in, no gen genuine debate. You saw how that stimulus was passed. And imagine that over and over again. Um, it is just to me, I'm a, I'm a real big process guy, and I know that's boring, and I know people don't care that much about it, but the stimulus is one of the few, and it's not in the Constitution, but it is one of the few things still preserving the Tenth Amendment and some basic federalism. The in filibuster, you mean? Yeah, the filibuster, sorry. So uh, and the last thing, though, is I'm not, I don't, I'm very worried that it's going to happen, but it might not. I don't understand, really, why they're even bringing it up as much when they don't even have the votes to pass the bills they would need it for. They don't have the votes for a minimum wage. They don't have the votes yet, as far as I know, for a um, for any of the big bills, for HR1, for anything they want to do. Maybe they have it for some sort of uh, gun control bill on universal background checks. But is Manchin going to destroy the filibuster over a bill that gets them what is not a very you know big deal? I mean, I know they pretend that, that there aren't background checks, but most guns are background checks. So I don't know. We'll see what happens, but I, I really hope it, it doesn't. 
David Harsani, everybody. Go to NashReview.com to read his latest there. David, always appreciate it, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Well, the situation on the ground is certainly challenging, in part because we inherited a dismantled system that wasn't prepared for uh, processing asylum requests um, that had left in place um, uh, the Remain in Mexico program. Yeah, it's because the the people before, you see, they did a bad job. That's why that's why we are being told there's a massive crisis at the border. We don't actually believe that. We, we know that's absurd. We know that's ridiculous. But that is what Jen Psaki is saying. And that's going to be the official line of the Biden administration, because with 13,000 minors, that's right. That's the latest number we've seen. 13,000 unaccompanied minors now in custody. They have got a problem here. They've got a problem. Uh, why is this? The, the That's the most I think that we've ever seen for unaccompanied minors. Why are they all coming right now? Because the things that the Trump administration did to gain control of the border, the Biden administration immediately came into office and right away undid them. That's going to cause a problem, right? When you come in, when something has been fixed and you unfix it, you're back to where you were beforehand. And that is what anybody who's being honest sees here. But of course, the Democrats are not honest about this and they will continue to just be Absolutely full of it because this is a problem for them. And here's the White House border coordinator, Roberta Jacobson, on. Well, well, let me, before I get to what she says, do you really think that they're going to let people see these facilities? Do you think that they're going to? This is our own federal government now. This is your tax dollars at work. You believe they're really going to allow for transparency? You think that they're going to allow people from the press to get access to what's going on? Are they going to get numbers? Are they going to have members of Border Patrol and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement who will tell them what's really going on, who will speak to them about all of this? Nope. There is a lockdown. I, I've already heard about about this. There, there is a total shutdown of of uh, communication between members, a lot of members of the press, especially if you're identified as being from a conservative outlet. I mean, they're they're just going to give you the runaround. This is how it works. If you want to talk and I'm going through this right now because I'm trying to set up a border trip in the next couple of weeks. I'm trying to get down there myself and we're trying to set up uh, conversations with members of Border Patrol, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And as we do that, a lot of the time what happens is there's just no response. What do you mean? This is the communications shop, right? This is the uh, public affairs office of Border Patrol for a certain sector. I'm from a media organization. I have a nationally syndicated radio show. Can, can I can I get somebody to tell me if, if I can get a, a an interview or a sit down or at least some some data? Nothing. You get non responses. What's that all about? Now, this is the kind of situation where I know that as this they can only do this for so long. And then what they'll start to do is give minimal response. They'll give you the run. There are a million ways The bureaucracy can play the we won't be held accountable game. We're not going to give you the facts and data you need. A lot of ways that that happens. And by the way, I don't blame Border Patrol, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. This is from the federal government at the very top. This is from the Biden White House telling them this. But you've had NBC News reporting on on it. You've had you've had many others who are saying, hey, they're just not giving us the information. They're just not giving us access So how can we cover this crisis that the government is in 
in the middle of and, and, ha- and supposed to be handling when government entities are saying you don't get the numbers, you don't get the access you need for this. Uh, here is, for example, um, well, here is Roberta Jackson talking about uh, Jacobson, rather talking about exactly this play six. I also think that it's really important that we be setting about the task of moving children to appropriate places. We're not hiding anything. We do want to be sure that um, the the story is told transparently. But but we're also in a situation of urgent need for children and need to move children. And that has to take first priority. Not not a lack of transparency. No, no, of course not. Mm mm. The Biden administration would never do that. Biden administration is all about presenting you with things that are really happening. Remember, this is an administration that is the whole thing is is a facade. The whole situation is the emperor has no clothes and they're all walking around acting like the guy who's naked. And now you're thinking about the emperor being Joe Biden walking around with no clothes. It's kind of a weird image. But you get what I'm saying, that they're they're telling you that he is able to run the country and be the leader of the free world. We all know that's ridiculous, but that's just the first of many lies. That's the first of many things that you're you're going to be told for the next four years or until they decide that somebody else needs to take over for him. And everything else that you see should be through this prism of understanding that they're not telling you the truth. There is a, a fundamental dishonesty at work here from this administration on the border issues, on, on a whole lot of issues. They say that this is a crisis they inherited. That's a lie. They say that they are being transparent. That's a lie. They say that they want the immigration, uh, the illegal immigration problem to stop. That's a lie. Right. They say that they're trying to uh, apply the rule of law. That's a lie. I mean, you go down the list. They say that these are people that are going to that, that that should be heard for asylum and they will show up for their hearings that everything is fine. That's a lie. How much of it can you withstand? How much of it are you supposed to are you supposed to hear before you say they can't be trusted on any of these issues? And, and the truth is, they can't. I think you I think you already see that. I think you already understand this. Oh, but Biden's not going to visit the border because he's taking action. I mean, does this work with other crises when a Republican doesn't go if there's a big storm or if there's a problem, if a Republican president is not there while it's still happening. He's heartless and he's awful and he's but Joe Biden can't get, you know, on Air Force One to go on a quick flight down to the southern border to see what's happening because Jen Psaki wants you to believe he's taking so much action. Play nine. The president said yesterday he does not have plans to visit the border. Why not? Because his focus is on uh, action and taking actions and moving forward policies to ensure we are expediting uh, the processing at the border, that we are opening more facilities, that we are putting in place policies that will move kids more quickly through the Border Patrol facilities, more quickly into safe and secure homes. And that's where his focus is. Yeah, he's just getting it done. That's right. Joe Biden is a guy who gets things done. Nobody believes this. But they they like to lie to your face and smile, knowing that the media is going to back them up and that this is the the ultimate gaslighting is that Joe Biden should be is capable of and will be a competent president of the United States. 
No one really believes this. No one really thinks this can be true. Who has good judgment, who pays attention and who knows what's going on. Even the media knows it's a lie, but they don't care because he's not the one really making the decisions. Well, what the president is not willing to do, Hallie, is to allow progress and to allow benefits the American people to be held hostage in the process. And so there are going to be conversations. There are going to be conversations. Um, and he's open to hearing different ideas. At the end of the day, his goal is to ensure that we can get things done for the American people. And he's open to a discussion about what that looks like. So it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is the door is not shut for the potential for the president to throw his weight and throw his support behind eliminating that 60 vote threshold. Is that fair? He said many times that that's not his preference. That's not his preference. But he is interested in the conversations that are happening. There are a lot of different ideas out there. He, again, as you said yesterday, signaled his openness to uh, re reverting to the talking filibuster. Uh, so he's open to the conversation. His preference okay. is to continue to work in a bipartisan manner because he thinks that we're stronger and we're better served when we're coming together and working across the aisle. That's always going to be a preference, but uh, he's open to ideas, and we'll see how that conversation develops. Yeah, we'll see how the conversation about Nuking the filibuster goes here. Nice Senate rules he got there, McConnell. Be a shame if something happened to it. That's how the Democrats play the game. This is White House, uh, what is she, comms director, Kate Bedingfield. On the filibuster, will it go away? You know, it really depends. Do Republicans do everything we want? If the answer is no, we might have to get rid of that filibuster. You know, do Republicans cave? Do they bend the knee? If not, they're making us... We don't want to do it. Oh, no, they don't want to do it. Of course, no, 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 they don't want to do that. Anything but that. Don't want to get rid of the filibuster. But sure enough, that is on the table. Um, that is the situation. That is the circumstance that we see. And if they go with it, if they go all out and decide that they're going to, to get rid of the filibuster, I want to be very clear that we're in for a rough ride until at least the midterms because the Democrats are talking a very big game here about the kind of things that they want to get done, they want to do. Uh, we're talking about a trillion to $2 trillion infrastructure package. Oh, I'm sure that's going to be really efficient. And well, that's not going to be a huge giveaway to the unions. And you know, no, no, of course not. Oh, my gosh. Really what they see this as is an opportunity to use the public, uh, public purse, to use the, the Treasury Department to shore up and buy off and strengthen the Democrat Party's political position and to just use taxpayer dollars to do it. That's that's how Democrats get it all done. That's that's their view. Look at what they did with the one point nine trillion dollar spending package. They gave all this money to cities and states, blue states and cities, many of which were running huge deficits and having all kinds of financial problems before covid. But they just want to funnel them a lot of money. They want to they want to use the taxpayers as a bailout for poorly run Democrat enclaves. And that's what's going on here. Uh, but, yeah, getting rid of the filibuster is something that they're they're very much considering. Depends on I think that with the phrase that uh, the White House comms director there said was being held hostage to the process. Oh, so when the process doesn't give you the outcome you want, the, the Democrat version of this is you're being held hostage to it. Oh, OK. Isn't that fascinating? You know, if you don't get what you want out of this, you get to destroy the process because Democrats say so. That's what they're that's what they're pushing. That's what they're trying to do. It's stunning. Um, here is. Oh, speaking of the, of the Senate, 
I thought Mitch McConnell had a pretty good line here. It reminds me of what somebody on this show, namely me, said a few days ago, which is, uh, it's so so not a crisis at the border. It's not an emergency, but you have to send the Federal Emergency Management Agency down there. Here is what he said. Play 13. My definition of a crisis is when you send the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which only goes to emergencies down to the border, it is by definition an emergency. This administration walked away from the policy the previous administration was able to negotiate with the Mexican government where people are detained on the other side of the border. They got rid of the solution. Hence the creation of the surge, the crisis, the emergency, whatever you want to call it, the the, the lawlessness that is rampant down there now, all of it. We see what happened here. We're, we're all aware of how we got to this point, but they're going to keep lying to you about it. They're going to keep pretending that there's some other reason, some other uh, rationale for all of this. And we just have to keep fighting back against the lies. I mean, the Biden administration, Biden said at so many times uh, during all this that there was that he was going to do this, essentially. I mean, he made it very clear to anybody who was watching that one of his goals in all this was to make the border a more hospitable, a better place for people to come to uh, illegally. Right. I mean, that that's really been a central, a central theme of everything that he has said on the immigration issue. And I think it's important that everybody understand that, that, if you go back and you watch, you listen, you hear about it, there is nothing there is nothing surprising about this outcome. There, there is nothing even a little bit um, you know out of out of what was promised here. There's nothing out of line. you know this is that, that, that Biden is getting what he should have based on the things that he was saying about the border. And and that's what I that's just where we are with all this. They can try to tell you other things as much as they want. It's total nonsense. Um, and then, of course, there's the pushing on H.R. one, too, which is the uh, the another place. I don't think they're going to go for breaking the filibuster on this one. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're looking for someone who's going to be particularly smarmy, disingenuous and dishonest, I think it's hard to do better than Senator Chuck Schumer. Here he is on what H.R. 1's all about and, and why, well, really, Republicans oppose H.R. 1, and you know what that means? They don't want people voting, he says. Play 15. These bills, sadly, are aimed at Americans of color, black Americans, Latinos, Native Americans. Despicably, efforts to target these historic disenfranchised communities have become a central component of the electoral strategy of one of America's major political parties. Shame on them. Shame. It's infuriating. Infuriating that they are, when you lose an election, you're supposed to win over the people you lost, not stop them from voting. That is un-American, autocratic, and against the fundamentals of our democracy. But this is happening in states all across the country. All across the country. Maybe the most reprehensible effort is underway in Georgia, where state Republicans are trying to limit absentee and mail-in voting, make it harder to post a ballot by Dropbox, 
and disallowing early voting on Sunday, a day when many church-going African-Americans participate in voter drives. Does anyone in this, on the other side of the aisle think taking Sunday way voting in Georgia is not bigoted? What's the rationale? Stop it if you want to stand for equality and justice. Why not early voting for six months? I, I just want, why, why not early voting for six months? Let's ask the question of Chuck Schumer. How about that? Why, why uh, even, even pretend that, you know, we should, the whole thing should just be on the honor system. I'm, I'm a drop box is basically the honor system, right? I mean, you know, you leave it, you drop it in there. No one knows, you know, who you are, what you dropped off, you know, but there you go. Why have any rules about elections? What's why have an age restriction? That's not fair. You know, there, there are 12 year olds who have ideas, too. Why not let 12 year olds vote? We know the Democrats are already advocating. This is real for 16 year olds to vote. Why not 12 year olds? At some point, there are agreed upon rules and the rules are enforced so that we're on an equal playing field in an election. And the Democrats are the ones who want to keep changing the rules. States are supposed to be able to conduct elections in the way that the state legislature sees fit. That's how this is supposed to happen. And yet they want to nationalize election process through H.R. 1. And because Republicans won't go along with it, the Democrats are, are screaming about about things being about it being a, a bigoted situation. Right. That's what they say. Every every voter restriction. Notice how it, whether it's I.D., whether it's not allowing votes to come in after voting day, uh, after election day, voting day, sorry, election day. That's a problem, too. Well, you know, when you when you start to work through this, when you start to actually look at it and ask the questions and understand what's going on, you see that as far as they're concerned, there can be there's no rule that can't be changed. The election. Why? Why one person, one vote? You know, we've got what about disenfranchised groups? Why not count some groups as having two votes? Doesn't seem like it's that far away from what the left seems to believe these days anyway. Right. Why, why not have some people have, uh, you know, they have additional voting time, but other people don't. I mean, they just they will blow out the rule book, do whatever they can do, whatever they want to do, as long as the final election result is that they win. We all see it. We're all very aware of this, but it worked against Trump in 2020. And man, they want to hold on in those midterms to the power they currently have. They think that they between now and the next presidential election, they think they'll be able to fundamentally transform the country. Something that Barack Obama promised during his term, he, he put it on a pathway to to transformation. And now Joe Biden's supposed to take us take us all the way to whatever that transformation is going to be. I think you're getting a sense of it. Censorship, social justice and socialism. That's that's pretty much going to be the, the those are the defining characteristics of the new America that the Democrat Party is trying to create. Welcome today. Three sixty seven of 15 days to slow the spread. Proponents of the economic lockdowns promised it would be just 15 days to flatten the curve. Instead of 15 days, the lockdown has now gone on for over a year. Early on in the pandemic, as we all remember, there were projections that hospitals would be full and have to turn away people. Medical equipment was in short supply. Businesses were closing. What they hoped would be on a temporary basis as government started locking down their economies and telling people to stay home. At that time, when programs like PPP were created, no one was under the belief that we would still be doing this a year later with no end in sight. This is 
something that we cannot let go without a real repudiation of the ideology, the mindset behind this. The idea that the government, it, that it was okay to say, just do this for 15 days and then extend it and extend it and extend it and then bring it back and then, you know, to- and then, then bring it down a little bit, then bring it back, then dial it down a little bit, then bring it back. For what? For what? What was the benefit of this? Governor Ron DeSantis says lockdowns do not work. It's a governor of a state of 21 million people, and he's straight up telling you they don't work. But yet we're still in a lockdown uh, here in New York City. You still have all these restrictions in place. It's it's utter, utter madness what has happened to this country. The greatest threat to our freedom in my lifetime, the greatest restrictions on our freedom in my life. Nothing else like this has ever happened. He's not since, since I've been on the earth. Going on 40 years here, folks. And guess what? What we see is that the authoritarian left and, and mass hysteria mixed with mass media created this willingness in so much of the population to just do what they're told, no matter how stupid it is. I mean, I was at a I was at dinner last night. I went out with the snow princess and a friend of hers. And we were at dinner last night. And I, I'm telling you, I sat down. There's no one around us. We're at a table. There's no one anywhere near us. I sat down and, and I know, OK, I got to go downstairs. I have to go use the restroom. I stand up. I have my mask in my hand, you know, and I'm unfolding it to put it up to my mouth. And a, and a server comes sort of, you know, running over to me and says, excuse me, you really need to have your mask on. And I'm like, you know, man, I'm obviously doing it. This is obviously moronic. All right. Can you just. But no, he's probably he probably watches a lot of CNN with the with the covid ticker at the bottom. And oh, my gosh, if we only masked up, we'd all be okay, You know, and I feel on the one hand, I get angry. On the other hand, I feel badly for people like this, that they go through life with with such a, a cloud of fear and anxiety all the time. And, you know, Dr. Alita Webb, this woman was formerly the head of Planned Parenthood. And then they got rid of her because she wasn't enough of a you have to be an abortion zealot to run Planned Parenthood. You have to think that abortion is is something to be celebrated, which is a truly just appalling and and awful thing. But uh, she was not to some shred of of, I guess, credit uh, on her behalf. She was not enough of an abortion extremist for Planned Parenthood. So they, they pushed her aside. Uh, and and he I mean, really, the, the people that have run Planned Parenthood in the past, they're ghoulish. I mean, they're they're awful human beings. Anyway, here she is, though. She's a doctor. So they put her on. She's a doctor who's famous. So they put her on TV telling us we're going to see a surge in COVID infections. Play five. Unfortunately, Chris, I think that we are on the cusp of that fourth surge that we've been dreading. And we see that. You mentioned 15 or so states that are seeing an increase in the number of infections already. We're also increasing over a high baseline of infections. And we have the variable that we now have these more transmissible variants becoming dominant here in the U.S. very quickly. Okay, we keep hearing this about the variants. We keep hearing this about the surge. We have to tune these individuals out. You have to stop listening to them, folks. I'm telling you, I just I just interviewed the governor of Mississippi, Governor Reeves, yesterday uh, for my TV show on the first. And and I said, how are your numbers? You've reopened. 
How are your numbers? How is it all looking? Who wants to guess? Are things looking terrible or are things all going the right direction? It's all going to be fine. Are things pretty much working as planned there with the reopen or are they about to go into a second lockdown because of the huge surge in cases? We, we all can guess. Things are fine. The cases are still going down. They got rid. They got rid of additional restrictions and it hasn't changed the trajectory toward lower and lower caseload hospitalizations and deaths. Now, when that's the case, a normal a normal approach, a scientific approach would be look at the data and then turn around and look at what's going on uh, because of these restrictions. And when those restrictions go away, if the data tells you that you're still getting the same kind of numbers in terms of reduction, what were the restrictions doing for you? Not allowed to think about it this way. Not allowed to approach it in, the, in that manner. You, you, this is a religious belief now. Restrictions work because they work. And if you challenge it, you don't take the virus seriously. What do we make of the political conversation out there in the aftermath of this a terrible shooting, this mass shooting in the Atlanta area? I want to talk about that. And if we also get a chance to ask about the change in critical race theory in the classrooms in Florida from our friend down in Florida, formerly of the NYPD, Mr. John Cardillo. He is also a conservative commentator, TV and radio host. John, great to have you. Always good to be with you, Buck. How's it going? Good, man. So, John, you know, you because you work in the law enforcement side, you're familiar with, you know, hate crime task force and, you know, FBI statistics on this. And and right now we're being told that there's a there's a particular uh, there's a particular moment where it seems Asian-Americans are being the target of, of hate crime attacks. But there's an immediate shift to this is Donald Trump's fault and it's white supremacy. What do you make of this? Well, it's, it's nonsense, right? So all this is stemming from this horrible uh, series of mass shootings in Atlanta. But investigators knew pretty quickly <clears throat> that the uh, the shooter, the killer, wasn't motivated at all by race, but instead blamed Asian uh, and, and a couple of whites were shot as well, uh, blamed sex workers for his sex addiction. This just looks to be a really disturbed guy. He went out and he targeted Sex workers, he targeted Asian massage parlors slash brothels, it looks like. That's that's the working investigative theory <clears throat> and the track they're going down. And those people within happen to be Asian. They happen to be the people that were running and working in those establishments. The narrative that the left is trying to spin, though, that white supremacy is now attacking Asians, is because even some center-left to left-leaning outlets over the last couple of months have acknowledged a nationwide problem, and that's, and this isn't a John Cardillo opinion or a Buck Sexton opinion. This is verifiable public record crime data. There's been an uptick in black on Asian attacks in cities like L.A., San Francisco, New York. Now, Buck, remember, this goes back to 1992, the L.A. riots, which were over the Rodney King incident, but a byproduct that shook out of that. If you remember what they called roof Koreans, all these Korean merchants on their roofs with long guns. It's because the black community also had this problem with the Korean community at the time, gentrifying areas, and they began attacking those stores, merchants, people as a byproduct of the riots. And so it's just the left's way of trying to blame everything on Trump and white supremacy and all these fabricated terms. But in the end, the attack wasn't about race at all. John, I've got to say the the hatred that is being put out there right now for anything Trump-associated, conservative, 
it hasn't it feels like it hasn't dissipated. I mean, the the news media is clearly I mean, you know, the, the liberal news media is in this place where they haven't gotten used to not having the great boogeyman that they can use to, to get ratings going. You know, CNN has lost. I, I think I saw the headline was a, a million viewers a night on average recently. Uh, I don't even know they had a million viewers to lose, but apparently they do uh, because Trump is no longer in office. I worry, though, that that especially as we see the continued absurdity of cognitive, uh, cognitively declining Joe Biden in office, that the radical left within the Democrat Party is calling the shots. There is no unity. There is no good governance from this White House or return to normalcy that the way they're going to they're, they're going to try to keep um, their opposition off balance is by running these campaigns of of anti-Trump hate, even though he's not president anymore and, and they're in charge. Yeah, look, I think I think it goes even further than that. They're running campaigns of anti-Trump hate and they're doing it knowingly maliciously and intentionally on bad information. The White House knows full well that the FBI director is absolutely in touch with authorities in the Atlanta area, Atlanta PD, Fulton County, whatever the lead agency is. They, they, they know full well that this was about killing sex workers because this guy had a sex addiction and all kinds of psych problems. But what does the Biden administration do today? They lower the flags at the White House to half mass. And they imply through Jen Psaki and their media cohorts on the left that they're doing that in solidarity with the Asian community against white supremacy. So this is pretty chilling third world banana republic type stuff, Buck. You've got the White House knowingly pushing disinformation. You've got members of Congress having uniformed National Guard troops march on Marjorie Taylor Greene's office because she made a, a comment about Guam. You've got armed troops and razor wire outside the U.S. Capitol. I can't think of things more un-American than what the Biden administration is now churning out twice a day, three times a day. It's it's chilling. Every American should be very concerned right now. I remember when Trump pulling or, or the Trump White House pulling a CNN reporter's hard pass, meaning that they don't have to check in. They can just go in and out of the White House at will was fascism, was a threat to our democracy, was the, the worst thing that, that was going on in the country at the time, that he would actually have to just, like other people do, show an ID, get a visitor's pass. No, no, you, you, can't, you can't pull a journalist who's acting like a jackass. That was a big deal, and that was the fascism of the Trump administration. Biden's administration comes in, they wrap the Capitol in fencing and barbed wire, deploy thousands of National Guard troops, And then you have official accounts from, you know, under the under the umbrella of the Pentagon going after one of the lone conservative voices out there. That's really a a thorn in the side that has the kind of uh, kind of, you know, magnificent amplification of his voice to be a thorn in the side of the left, Tucker Carlson. And and they don't seem to see they don't seem to understand, John, that if what if anyone has to be worried about where fascism is going to come from in America, it's actually going to come from the left. It's going to come from the Democrats. Well, look, I can't recall a time. I mean, we, you know, people, we, and I say we, I mean, us on the right, people like you and I in media, we'll mock, we'll beat up on metaphorically people on the left. We'll, we'll, we'll mock Brian Stelter and Jim Acosta and Jake Tapper for their dishonesty. But there's never been, as far as I can remember, and, and you and I are in this every day, a campaign to cancel, to shame, to threaten the families of anybody on the left. Look, it. it the news business is a business. We know most of these people are opinion commentators. 
posing as journalists, and we mock them and, and we critique them in the public sphere. But what the left does, what they're doing to Tucker Carlson, what they did to people like Laura Logan, what they do to anybody that disrupts their narrative, that, that counters their manufactured narrative is, they really go to hurt these people. And I mean that in a physical sense as well. Look, they know Tucker Carlson has a wife and young kids. They want to put his address out there. And we all know why they want to do that. They love to see Antifa and Black Lives Matter outside of this guy's house threatening him and his family because they hope that'll pacify Tucker Carlson and the rest of us into fear and into silence. This is the, the, the left. It's beyond fascism at this point. I've been saying for years We've been in, in cultural civil war, ideological civil war 2.0 for many years now. Before Trump, it, it, during the Obama administration, it started. But the left is the only one acknowledging it and fighting. And they would love nothing more than to criminalize. You're starting to see some of the fringe far left members of Congress. They want to criminalize conservative opinions. They want to equate conservative opinions with criminal terroristic threats and hate speech. I mean, this is really bizarre stuff we're living through. And Buck, no one, no one, bar a few on the right, too few, far too few elected Republicans are opening their mouths, saying a word or doing a thing about it. And that's pretty disgraceful in itself. We're speaking to John Cardillo, formerly of the NYPD and a conservative commentator. Follow him on Twitter if you don't already, at John Cardillo. And John, to, to that end, I... I feel like we we don't really have much of a of a of a counterpunch of a counter narrative going on right now. I think people are really scared, including those who have pretty big platforms of having their sponsors attacked. I think people are worried about losing their social media access, which, as you know, in our business for a lot of folks, you know, there are conservative websites that would go out of business in a month if they if they couldn't push their content on Facebook. I think that we're going through a period where. We're on we're on defense in ways that we've never really even seen before in this country on the right in general. Yeah, not only around defense in those ways, you're 100 right, but never before have we also had the referees acknowledge that they're rigging the game for the other side. And now it's plain as day. I mean, they're just coming out and saying it. So how do you fight that? I don't know. I think conservative outlets are getting smarter they're making capital investments in their own technology infrastructure local not cloud-based so that they can't be the platform by the amazon and the big guys but like you say how do they disseminate their content and, and in part monetize the content to keep generating it if they're deplatformed off the facebook's the twitter's etc so it's a really really scary place and you know to that point buck one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say well we need a conservative twitter it's not that easy it takes years and billions of dollars and the biggest problem is you're not going to have enough uh, influencers and enough personalities migrate off of twitter onto a new platform to bring the masses with them to make it as powerful as a marketing advertising and revenue generation tool twitter or facebook and so it's, it's a much bigger problem than just the platitude of well a rich conservative should start a new abc it then that platitude could ever solve John, I also wanted to ask about, uh, you know, I, I don't like to do too much of the uh, of the, uh, you know, rah, rah, Ron DeSantis, because I feel like I leave out a lot of the rest of the country. But I got to be honest with you, uh, a lot of us uh, see what's going on down in Florida. We say, OK, so he kept the state open despite all the pressure and came out, came out the big winner in terms of leadership from the pandemic. He is trying to protect free speech uh, on these social media platforms by pushing for state laws 
that will create essentially a protected class for conservatives on platforms that are operating, at least in the state of Florida. And now he's even saying that he's getting rid of critical race theory from classrooms in Florida. Is this the model, you think, that other conservative governors are going to start to wake up and understand Republican governors will wake up and understand that needs to be followed? What do you see happening? Yeah, I mean, if they want to win, it's the model. You know, the most interesting thing about Ron DeSantis is what many of us here who backed him thought was going to be a major weakness became his greatest strength. And it's that he he was a relatively weak retail candidate because he didn't care about being loved. But man, as a governor, when, when, when the rubber meets the road, it's become his greatest strength because the guy doesn't care about being loved. He looks at things with a very brilliant, brilliant guy, DeSantis, academically, analytically. And he looks at these things through that analytical lens. And when it doesn't make sense to him, like mask mandates and locking businesses down and, and, and slanted critical race theory, he has no qualms about saying, OK, we're getting rid of this because this makes no sense. And to paraphrase him, it's not getting a penny of taxpayer dollars. And so, yeah, I think if Republicans want to get elected, they need to start following the Ron DeSantis and, and Christy Gnomes of the world uh, in terms of how they're handling their states. And I, I got to say, just before that you go, John, I don't know if you saw the uh, photo circulating of, of John Kerry on an American Airlines flight oh, yeah. in first class. No mask on, not even around his, you know, not even like down around his chin or anything. Just just no mask visible anywhere, just on the plane. This just goes to my theory. You and I have talked about this. The people that are the most sanctimonious about telling everybody to mask up are the ones that derive the most joy from not wearing a mask the second they think they can get away with it. And he got away with it. And look, Americans now trying to deflect from this and they're saying our policies haven't changed and we're beating them up pretty good on social media. But we all know what happened here. I mean, I'm 99 percent sure it was some woke Democrat flight attendant that was starstruck by Kerry and let him do whatever he wanted. They'd have probably served him 14 martinis if he asked for him and told people sitting next to him, you have to keep your mask on and you can't have a drink because the concept of equal anything is dead in this country and it's being flaunted in our faces. John Cardillo, everybody. John, uh, great to have you on, man. Thanks so much for joining. Appreciate it. Always a great time. Thanks, Buck. This is still not a time to travel uh, just uh, just because. Uh, and the CDC has encouraged people to, uh, obviously, you should check the CDC website. Uh, think twice before traveling if you don't have to. I'm among the many Americans who uh, feels that that impatience, that urge to, you know, to get out, to travel, uh, to, to see people that we care about, to, to be able to travel for work uh, more and more. And, uh, and yet we know that, that we should do that only when it's responsible. This is no time to let down our guard. This is certainly no time to surrender to the virus. Don't surrender to the virus, everybody. Not allowed to surrender to the virus. I mean, the rhetoric here. Give me a break. People would just want to live our lives without being nagged. Nagged into insanity, which is what the lockdowners are doing. Just shut up. Your way did not work. It did not stop the virus, the masks, the lockdowns. It didn't work. We did all this stuff. We've done it for a year. And, you know, that's why when I see this photo of John Kerry on American Airlines and you know, that was the transportation czar or whatever, minister, not minister of transportation, what's it called? The uh, secretary of the Department of uh, Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Um, I like transport- transportation czar sounds better, though. But, you know, when you see John Kerry on that American Airlines flight and it's so clear that he's just chilling out in first class, no mask on because he knows. No one's going to tell John Kerry to put a mask on. You know, no one's really going to tell him to do it. 
Uh, I mean, the reason they, they keep pretending that they won't let you unmask after vaccination because they don't really know. It's, it's not because they don't, they don't know if you're still going to infect people. That's just that's not that's the cover story. It's because they know that if it actually turned into some people, if some people can start to not mask, everyone's going to everyone's going to unmask pretty quickly. Not everybody, but, you know, 50 percent of the country would be like, yeah, sure, I'm vaccinated. Good luck. That's what it's all. It's just about control. They're not really worried. Oh, there's going to be so much spread because people are going to say that they uh, people who are are vaccinated um, are are going to be able to spread this. No, they're worried that people are going to have an excuse then to to not mask. I mean, you know, if if it were more clear in New York, I would totally be one of these people that walks around with the I have a, a health restriction that prevents me from wearing a mask. Yeah. When I want to go on the treadmill and I'm by myself, and there's no one around me. I would I would pull that card. I'd say, yeah, sorry, I have a mysterious health ailment that prevents me from being able to mask. But in New York, you won't get away with that. I think in some places in Florida, you can probably get away with that, and maybe in some other states. But you know, there's how dare you? And you know, there's HIPAA privacy rules that they they're not supposed to be able to ask you, but they do they do anyway. I had a friend who was in Florida. She went into a uh, uh, she went into a grocery store without a mask. Uh, oh, no, this was, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't a mask thing. It was a dog thing. She brought her dog and said that it was an emotional support dog. And then they said, or, you know, that it was a service dog. And they said, well, you have to show us. And she said, actually, I don't because it's uh, there's a HIPAA privacy rules that you can't violate. That could be applied, I think, to masking, too, in different places. But look, they, 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 you're being trained to obey. Like we're all a bunch of dogs, like we're all a bunch of lab rats in an experiment. Obey, even though it doesn't work. Obey, even though it hasn't done anything for you, even when it's unreasonable in every sense. After vaccination, it is totally unreasonable to expect people to continue to mask. All right. That is a that is a psycho thing to do. But that's the official policy. It's the official CDC. It's the official, you know, control mechanism. So I'm sorry that we still live in a country that has not yet regained its senses, but we're still fighting. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call, everybody. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to send me a message, please do. And... Let's get right to it. Um, oh, and also uh, go to BuckSexton.com. You can listen to the podcast there. Lori, dear Buck, started listening a few months back. Really enjoy the mental engagement you offer. Credible, inter- uh, credible information presented in an entertaining manner. Rush would be proud of you. Well, thank you, Lori. I appreciate that. Just to let you know, we are a military family with our fourth generation a West Point grad who is now an infantry officer. Uh, we buy, support Black Rifle Coffee, My Pillow, and many of the authors you present us. Well, Lori, thank you so much. That's what keeps me employed. So really, really does mean a lot. I just purchased and downloaded the audiobook of The Parasitic Mind after listening, then re-listening to you and your guest, God Saad. Just awesome presentation. As a former military nurse, I didn't have Shields High, but I did have... Morphine and TLC, many military patients needed. God bless, Buck. Keep up the great work. Well, Lori, your uh, your your roll call message today has brightened up my day. Kind of a gloomy, gray, not great day in New York City. 
And you've certainly put a smile on my face. So thank you so much for that, Mark. And I really appreciate it. God bless you and your family. And, and thank you for, uh, for listening, for writing in, and of course, for supporting our sponsors. I mean, that's, it's absolutely critical for us. I mean, if we're going to stay, we're going to stay on the air. We need people to, uh, to trust and, and, and try out our different sponsors. All those products that I say I'm using, I do. And I, and I like them and they're a part of my daily routine. And, uh, if you want to help the show, yeah, get people to listen. But the uh, the level even beyond that is to is to actually buy products from our sponsors with that promo code Buck or whatever my promo code is. As I say to you, that's how you that's how you vote uh, with your dollars to keep this show on the air. It really it really is. Sarah, hey Buck and Mark, a report from Flyover Country. While blue states continue to oppress their citizenry, citing COVID nineteen concerns. Life just got a little more normal for us. The kids' school district just announced no more mask requirement for kids or staff. Hallelujah. Of course, there's always the possibility the requirements could be reinstated if the numbers go back up. But anyway, it's sad being allowed uh, such basic unalienable rights, or it's sad when being allowed such basic unalienable rights, like breathing feels like freedom. Still, I'll take it. I'm sorry for my friends in blue states. Uh... Yeah, I, I think, look, that's great news that there's no more requirements, a mass requirement for kids or staff. And I, I don't know where you are in the country. You didn't tell us, but I think I might need to move there. It's just so it's just so absurd now, folks. I mean, I, I just have no tolerance anymore. It's not even about me being right and them being wrong or anything else. It's just can, can you stop being a bunch of crazy nags, lockdowners, you know, just nagging everybody all the time. Bunch of hall monitors. Yeah, put your mask on. No. How about no? This is dumb. Leave me alone. But they won't do it. They won't do it. They're so convinced. When, when I can't wait for them to finally, you know, the MSNBC credits say, well, Fauci says we can finally put our masks on. I'll say, I'm sorry. Is the flu gone? Why are you subjecting people to the possibility of, of dying from flu? Why are you such a monster by breathing normally? What could be, what really could be a more, a more fundamental freedom than the right to breathe to breathe air normally. I mean, breathing even more so than food and shelter I mean, breathing is the first thing you need. Can't can't breathe comfortably or normally because the libs say so. So really, it's really like a psychological warfare technique. Get everybody to start complying, obeying, get uncomfortable, do it because we say so. Do, and if you don't, you're a bad person. They're arresting. I, I just uh, I had a, a news story I was going to talk about. They, they arrested some lady recently uh where where was it here I'll, I'll track it down for you so i'm not just talking about this in general terms they arrested her for not putting um you know not not putting on a mask where was this you know so they will do that they will they will actually take you here texas woman detained for second time within days over refusal to wear a mask here we go uh where was this texas woman was arrested on wednesday over refusing to wear a face mask inside a business uh, Texas City Police, just after 9 a.m. on Wednesday, she'd been asked by employees at an office depot to leave unless she put on a facial covering. Uh, the second time, and police have been called over rights, refusal to wear a mask within six days. She was placed in handcuffs by police. That's right. They're, they are arrested. They're, look, I know you say it's a private business, but we all understand that there, we've been psychologically damaged by the by the grotesquely incompetent and moronic CDC and the little tyrant Fauci. And so businesses don't want to be sued. It's not as simple as just 
this is what a business chooses to do. That's that's the uh, the excuse. If businesses don't do this, they may be subject uh, subject to to lawsuits and all kinds of problems. So there you go. Uh, Sarah. Hey. Oh, no, that's that was Sarah. Uh, Adam. Buck is the snow princess, a secret dad, Bob, a dad bod enthusiast. You don't need the horror of the gym in a mask. Shields high. Um, Adam, I'd like to think no, but I think she, you know, my, I think my dad bod is okay. That's what I would say. But then I really got to become a dad soon because otherwise this is, you know, you can't call it really a dad bod. It's uh, just, otherwise uh, you're just fat. Otherwise you're just a pleasantly plump, you know? Right. So, uh, that's a nicer yeah. way to put it. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Thank Right. Exactly. Um, but no, she is a uh, very fit. Um, she was a, uh, actually a professional, on the side uh, from her other job, from her corporate job, she was a professional yoga instructor for years. So she uh, she is in excellent shape. I am trying to catch up, but producer Mark, I got a I got a ways to go. She's in good enough shape for the both of you. That exactly. She's got abs. Why do I need abs? The Snow Princess has got abs. Exactly. There's enough abs for one apartment. Yeah, we'll sh- we can share her abs. That's my that's my uh, story, and I'm sticking to it. Here we go. Frank writes, I read the book The Power Couple by Alex Berenson at your recommendation. Absolutely loved it. I didn't think I could appreciate Alex more than I already did. Thanks, Buck, for your excellent guest choices. And, of course, your great show and podcast. Barely a day goes by that I don't listen. Well, Frank, that means a lot. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I really, really do appreciate that uh, you, first of all, it's it's great that you, you support my work, which is my primary consideration here doing what I do. Um, but I also appreciate that you support the people that we have on because, you know, people come on this show because they want to. You know, I, I can't pay our guests to come on. Uh, I'm not Fox News, so I can't promise them, you know, a three million person video audience or something. Uh, you know, they come on the show because they appreciate what I do and they know that it'll be a good conversation. And and they know that we've got a great audience of of really engaged, intelligent people that that honestly just have really good taste in radio shows. I'm just going to say it. I mean, this radio show is better than, I mean, I think this is the best radio show on the air right now. People can, you know, they can disagree and they can yell at me. And I don't care. That's what I, I, I listen. I've heard everybody else out there right now. And, you know, I think this is the best show. I'm entitled to my opinion as a host. So there you go. There are some other great shows and I have total respect for the people that have great shows, but I think this show is as good or better than any other show out there. So that's uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Pablo. Uh, hey, Buck. Shields high. Oh, wait. Sorry, Frank. One more thing about the power couple. I bought the power couple, too. So I appreciate that you're supporting our friend Alex Berenson. I believe in doing that. I, I, I can get all these different books for free, usually from publishers, because they want the PR that we can give them here on the show. But I like to buy people's books, and I, I like to do so because um, I want to support them. And I just think it's a good principle. You know, I, I it's like an artist's work, right? You want to actually buy the painting of an artist that you really like. You don't want to just ask your artist friend, you know, give me your painting because, you know, you, you want to be help helping them stay the same way that I tell you, please buy stuff from our sponsors. You know, that that's a very important thing to do. I haven't read The Power Couple yet, but I did buy it. It is on my Kindle. So, Frank, now that you've uh, said this, uh, I'm going to check it out, too. And, you know, I, I am very appreciative of Alex Berenson's work on masks and lockdowns, and he's still very much involved in the uh, the vaccine 
coverage situation. Uh, I asked him just, you know, I've asked Alex a couple of times in the last uh, couple of weeks. Well, I've asked him twice in the last month, I think, uh, to come on. And he keeps saying he, he will, he will. He's just working on some research. So we'll get him back on again soon because I want to talk to him about the vaccine situation. He certainly has. Alex is more skeptical of the vaccine success from what I see than I am. And I, and I want to hear him out and know, I want to know why. Because, I, look, I trust that he's very astute, very honest, and does his research. So I want to hear him out. So I'm going to bring him on as soon as we can to talk about it. All right, roll call continues here with Pablo. Hey, Buck Shields. Hi, I was listening to you today, and you played a clip where Biden mentioned the MAGA people. I actually detected a disdain in his voice. I get the impression he doesn't like Trump supporters. He really doesn't care about half of the country. I think he may actually dislike us. On another note, as much as I want Donald J. Trump to be president right now, in four years, I'm not sure. He will be a lame duck president. If he can't get Mike Pence to run with, that would be bad optics. I believe you're currently correct about Governor DeSantis' chances for winning the presidency. I think his running mate should be Pompeo, Mike Pompeo. Talk about a power ticket. Just one more thing. You and producer Mark had a conversation about Denzel movies. You didn't mention my favorites, which are Man on Fire and Book of Eli. Shields High. Well, Pablo, a few things here. Um, Man on Fire is very watchable for what it is, I will say. Uh, Book of Eli, I found a little. There's some very cool scenes in that. Very good, uh, very engaging sequences. I, I thought it was a little grim as a movie, like a little, a little depressing for my taste. Uh, so there's that. And uh, what, what did Bruce Mark? Did you say what your favorite Denzel movie was? I forget now. Oh, remember the Titans, of course. Oh, right, right, right. Remember the Titans. Yeah, for me, it's. Whew. I mean, his best movie, although he's not the lead in it, maybe Glory. But then there's also Training Day. He's amazing in Training Day. Uh, you know, Denzel. He's really good in American Gangster too, which is another highly. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, very, very isn't, good movie. Isn't he in the taking of Pelham one, two, three as well? I think he might be. Is that with Ethan Hawke? I think so. Great movie. I love his thrillers. Whenever Denzel's in a thriller, sign me up. I've never seen that. Isn't that about um? Is that about a money train or no, am I, is that a different movie? They stole a subway car. Okay. And that they're in the New York City subway sta- system and they can't stop them. I think Denzel is the operator who's trying to stop them, or he's involved in some... He's a main character, obviously. But why would you, st- why would you steal a subway car? Like, what I, are you going to do with it? I don't remember the whole plot, but I know it mostly takes place in the New York City subway system. But I mean, like, wouldn't that, wouldn't that not work out so well? You go on, you know, you're like on posting on Craigslist, you know, hey, subway car, fresh off the tracks, you know, a million dollars. or whatever. I, I believe it was a getaway from a crime of some sort. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's like steal the subway car. Can you imagine this? Is like uh, you you post this online, you know, like on Zillow or something. You know, hey, subway car can turn into a one bedroom apartment. Just have to deal with the uh, rat feces, human urine, and uh, graffiti uh, all over the place. But uh, once you take care of that, you're good to go. I mean, to plus be fair, you have to bring it above ground. A subway car is probably bigger than your apartment. That's that's harsh, but fair. I mean, any NYC apartment. I wasn't no, just picking on you. No, no, I know, I know, it's true. I mean, you know, it's subway car probably does have more square footage than the apartment I live in. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're honest. Wasn't there a movie, there was a movie called Money Train as well, right? 
where there was some train that was transporting money and they took it over. I don't, I don't, I can't keep. There's another stuff. Denzel movie about a train where uh, the runaway train where he has to stop it. He's in a lot of movies. I don't even. I can't keep up with all of them. I just he is one like of the them, more yeah. he is one of the more prolific actors on the scene. That's certainly true. Uh, so as for the uh, politics that Pablo brought up here, uh, let's see. Governor DeSantis, his chances for winning the presidency. Um, okay, a few things. Uh, Governor DeSantis, his chance for winning the presidency. I think that he would be at this at this stage right now with Donald Trump's blessing and machinery behind him. I think DeSantis is the best option we've got right now. And I think that Trump... Now, look, you know, there's some other interesting ideas. What about the DeSantis ticket? And maybe, you know, you might you could have a member of the Trump family running as a VP. You could have uh, Junior maybe run as VP. That's a possibility. Who knows? You know, that may be a way that you bring the Trump machinery together with a DeSantis ticket. I, I don't know. I, I'm just I'm just spitballing here. But I, I do think Ron DeSantis is the, the best option we've got right now. Um, you know, Trump, for, when you're when you're 74, three, 74, four years, a long time, folks, we all know that four years, a long time when you're that age. And and we would like to think that that Trump will still be the the dynamo of of energy and vitality that he was uh, during his first term. But who knows? You know, I mean, God willing, he will be. But we, we just got to see. J.R., many have pondered the successful teaming of Buck and producer Mark. I see this as a margarita. While the Buckster is the intoxicating elixir, producer Mark is the salt rimming the glass. One is incomplete without the other. Plus, producer Mark being salty makes you thirst for more. The perfect margarita. What do you think, producer Mark? That's quite a, it's quite a description. I like it. And we both love margaritas. So. That is also true. Mm-hmm. And producer Mark and Buck, the, uh, the margarita team. In Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf is allowing you to drink at the bar beginning April 4th. All Pennsylvania Team Buck members should demand the podcast at their local bars and salute the best team in the business. Shield in one hand and glass raised high in the other. Well, JR, I love this plan. I love this idea. It's fantastic. And thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Uh, let's, let's get it going. Eric, I have to wonder how many people have left Facebook over the way the website treated people because of pictures of January 6th. My friends and I were discussing a picture of two guys holding flags with a guy wearing horns. We never said anything giving explicit or tacit support or what was happening, and Facebook put me in time out. Um, so I decided I was not going to waste more time on the website, deleted the app off my phone. I haven't deleted my profile because I haven't figured out what to do with 10 years of pictures yet, but that day of reckoning is coming. If more people would delete the app, delete their profiles, it would hurt them. I feel like I've reclaimed my life since leaving. Eric, we are going to have to take action against social media companies, and it's going to have to hurt them in the wallet. Otherwise, nothing changes. That's a continuing conversation we'll keep having here on the show. Team, thanks as always for being here. God bless. And no matter what comes your way, no matter what we face, you know what your orders are. Shields high.